morning's reading is taken from Judges, chapter 3, starting at verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot about the Lord their God, and they served the images of Baal and the Asherah poles. Then the Lord burned with anger against Israel, and he turned them over to King Cushan Rishatham of Aram Naharim. And the Israelites served Cushan Rishatham for eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Othniel, the son of Caleb's younger brother, Kenaz. The spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he became Israel's judge. He went to war against King Cushem Rathashatham of Aram, and the Lord gave Othniel victory over him. So there was peace in the land for 40 years. Then Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. If you have been taking any notice of, it's called Restore, isn't it, 2022? Yes. And if you have been watching the little videos, it's just possible you will already know what I'm going to begin by saying. But I'm going to say it anyway. It's interesting to see that there is a, a theme that runs through Judges into Samuel. Whoever wrote these books had a theme in mind. You will have noticed as you read through Judges that again and again it tells us at that time there was no king in Israel. The inference is that if there had been a God-fearing king leading the people, these terrible things which were going on wouldn't have happened. Even the book of Judges concludes with this, that there was no king in Israel at that time, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Then we have this little book of Ruth, which of course is about a, a displaced family, um, an economic migrant family in Moab, where a woman, Naomi, loses all her male family. They die tragically, and she's left with two daughters-in-law, and she determines to go back to Israel, and one daughter-in-law, Ruth, turns out to be so faithful and loyal she returns. She adheres to the God of Israel, Naomi's God. And when she gets back to Israel, she gets married. She's redeemed by a family kinsman. And guess what? The child that she has is the great, is the grandfather of King David. So, for a long time there was no king in Israel. But then comes Obed, and he is the grandfather of he who will be king. And Ruth finishes with a little genealogy of David. Then we go into Samuel, and Samuel is the last of the judges of Israel. And he is the one who's told by God to anoint David to be king over Israel. And then they have a king, and for the first time under David, 
they become a united kingdom instead of a confederacy of tribes. And of course, it's to David that is given the messianic promises that his kingdom will go on and on and endure forever. Now we can look back, just as the writer of these three books looked back and saw no king, promise of a king, king, we can look back and see how those messianic promises were fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the deliverer of Israel and the king of kings. So we're looking at judges, but I want to finish with Jesus. That's great, I've never had a musical accompaniment before. <laughs> but I think it, it adds, adds something, doesn't it? <laughs> now then again, if you're following Judges, you will realise that this reading, thank you, <laughs> with these different difficult words in, you will realise that this reading actually illustrates a, a pattern which is a pattern which recurs over and over again through the period of the judges. There is a time when the people sin and they sin dreadfully. And as you go through judges, um, they become so perverse at times in their social interactions and the things they do. Utterly perverse. The people sin and then it gets to such a stage that even the sinful people feel this can't go on. God is judging us by these, with these barbarians that have been living on either side of us. And we must call out to God and the people call out to God. And in spite of their former disobedience, God listens to them and provides for them a deliverer. He provides a deliverer. The word deliverer, by the way, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, some of you may need to correct me afterwards, but the word deliverer that's used here is yasha. And if you understand that the Hebrew name for Jesus is Yeshua, you may recognize that there's a linguistic connection between these words. Yasha, Deliverer, Jesus, Saviour. Uh, we have a Hebrew scholar down here. She... Okay. Uh, but I did get a nod just a moment ago, so that's okay. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The eyes of the Lord. They may well not have been doing evil in the eyes of their neighbours. They may not have been doing evil in the eyes of their current culture. But they were doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. 
In other words, the way that God looked at their actions and reactions was not necessary or at all the way they looked out for themselves. I suggest in passing, they're having fun, aren't they? I suggest in passing that we need to ask ourselves whether the things we do and believe and assent to are the things which are simply right in our culture's eyes, our political lives, or whether they are things that are right in God's eyes. Because God's eyes judge us by his law, his word. And I have to say, I'm really worried about the church today, generally, that too many of the decisions and things that are being made, even at high levels in churches, are being made on the basis of culture's eyes and our own eyes and not God's eyes. Do you hear what I'm saying? I got a thumbs up this time. When God cried out, when the people cried out to God, he gave them Othniel and the Spirit of the Lord came upon them. Then it all happened again and they gave him Ehud. Then it happened again and he gave them Deborah. Then it happened again and he gave them Gideon. Then it happened again and he gave them Jephthah. Even the deliverers that he gave weren't perfect. Gideon created an artifact which became a snare to Israel. Samson broke just about every vow that a Nazarite made. Jephthah made the rashest possible vow and suffered for it afterwards. God chose people who would listen to him and used them as deliverers, but they were no more perfect than you or I. But, going down through the ages, when they had a king, David wasn't perfect either, though he was a man after God's own heart. And the kings that followed him, Solomon broke the basic laws that Moses said a king should never break. The kings beyond him, there were good kings and there were kings that did just what the people did in Judges, served the Baals and the Ashtaraz of the nations around. Jesus is without sin. Jesus is the deliverer par excellence. We have come down through history with an understanding of what a deliverer might, ought to be and what a king ought to be. And Jesus is our deliverer who is right in God's eyes.
who is a king who rules and judges correctly in God's eyes. Remember that, because I'm coming back to it in a minute. The reason the people sinned, at times we're told they forgot the Lord. They served the Baals and Ashtaraz. These were the gods of the nations round and about. We have gods round and about us. I believe our governments rule according to the law of economy. Mammon. I suspect some churches actually rule by the same pattern. I should explain that before I retired, I was a regional um, missioner, we called them in those days. So when I say these things, I'm not just thinking of one or two churches that I might have seen. I'm thinking of many churches that I saw over a period of 12 years. The people fell into sin, we're told, in Judges. Because God said to them through a prophet on one occasion, I am the Lord your God, but you haven't listened to me. On another occasion, he said to them, you forsook the Lord and no longer served him. The most damning thing in the book of Judges is the people did what was right in their own eyes. I'm very scared for the Church of Jesus Christ again in this country as I've seen it over these years because I've discovered that in many places there are people who have decided the scriptures are old-fashioned and God's word isn't for today because we are much more civilized these days and we are more compassionate and understanding and we think that we can neglect certain parts of what God says is right and wrong in favor of what we believe is more compassionate and better. We are in fact better than the old-fashioned God of the Bible. Now then, in the words of Paul, such people consider themselves wise but become fools in the eyes of God. These are horrible passages in Judges, aren't they? But could it be that they relate to modern life as well?
Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We can justify, oh yeah, I know the scripture says that, but we can justify what we did because we did it out of love. It's the way our society thinks. It's what the government has decreed. So we can justify these things on which we disagree with the law of God. I hope you're sitting there thinking, what on earth is he talking about? This has got nothing to do with me. Please God, that's what you're thinking. Please God, that's what your heart is telling you. That when you kneel down before the Lord tonight, you know that you have not done evil or strayed in the eyes of the Lord. That you haven't diverged from God's righteousness to satisfy our cultural norms. Please God, you're able to say that. Now, it says here the Lord was angry with them. And we really don't like talking about God's anger these days, do we? After all, we are much more modern people than these Jews were. We don't want to talk about the anger of God. It's not in the New Testament. Well, unless you read Paul, the wrath of God is revealed against all forms of ungodliness. Let me ask you a question. You don't have to answer aloud, please. You've spent a lot of time on your garden. You've trimmed the lawn. You've done your hedges. You've planted beautiful flowers. And it just looks magnificent. And one night, while you're asleep, a drunk gets through your gate and he rips up the flowers and he, and he messes up the lawn and he even has a poo in your garden. And you're going to get up in the morning, aren't you, and say, oh, bless him. I don't think so. I think you're going to be angry because he's messed up your work. My dad was in hospital for a number of years when I was very young. And one of the things they, he took up while he was in hospital was making models out of balsa wood. They were very complicated models. And he made a galleon and he carried on doing this when he came out of hospital. He put this unfinished galleon which had hours of work in it on a top in my bedroom. And that night I slept walked and I knocked the thing on the floor. My dad did not wrap me in his arms the next day and say, 
what a good boy are you. He was a fair dad. He wasn't a cruel dad. But boy, he was angry for a while. All that effort he had put into it. And in fact, the Bible says it's not wrong to be angry. It says, be angry, but don't sin. And don't let the sun go down on your anger. But it's legitimate to be angry at injustice and folly and wickedness and carelessness. And God gets angry. Thank God he is good. Thank God he is merciful. But God does get angry. And it seems with these Israelites that he expressed this in a way that even their dull minds might recognize after a while. There were barbarians on this side and there were horrible people on that side. Selfish, ambitious, land-grabbing people who invaded from this side or dominated from that side. And God took away his protection for a time from the people and they were ravaged by these tribes until they called out to the Lord. And did they call out to the Lord? And he didn't need another moment. He heard them and he gave them a deliverer. Thank you, God. And we have reason to suppose that the nation during the time of that judge was somewhat reformed and returned to the Lord. Indeed, we know under Gideon that the, the bales were torn down and the Asherah torn down. And then they had peace for a while until the judge died. And then the circle repeated. We have a deliverer, Jesus, who did die, but lives, who is raised from the dead and who has given us everything necessary for life and godliness, as Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1. I want to read in a moment an article that was written by Jonathan Sack. At the time he wrote it, I don't know whether he's still alive. Does anybody know? He's not alive? He has now died. 
What a good man he was. When he wrote this, he was the chief rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregations of the Commonwealth. Godly man. He wrote, and this by the way is dated the 21st of May, 11 years ago, and was published in the Times. He quotes a member of the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, part of a team tasked with the challenge of discovering why it was that Europe having lagged behind China until the 17th century, overtook it, rising to prominence and dominance. At first, he said, we thought it was your guns, you had better weapons than we did. Then we delved deeper and thought it was your political system. Then we searched deeper still and concluded it was your economic system. But for the past 20 years, we have realized it was in fact your religion, Christianity. It was the Christian foundation of social and cultural life in Europe that made possible the emergence first of capitalism, and then of democratic politics. He goes on later in his article, as a non-Christian, remember he is a Jew, as a non-Christian, I find this fascinating. Europe is losing the very thing that once made it great while China, the world's fastest growing economy, is discovering it. What has China realized that the West is rapidly forgetting? That a civilization is as strong as its faith. As a culture grows old and tired, as people borrow more and save less, as they value pleasant pleasures, pleasures over future growth, so they begin to lose the beliefs and practices that made their society successful in the first place. He goes on. The decline and fall of civilizations has been charted, charted by the wise for many centuries. They include the sages of ancient Egypt, the prophets of ancient Israel, the great 14th century Islamic thinker Ibn Khaldun, and the far-seeing 18th century Italian philosopher and historian Giambattista Vico. They all 
offer essentially the same analysis. Civilizations begin by valuing austerity, courage, self-sacrifice. They set them on a path to growth. As they become successful, they grow more self-indulgent and self-centered. People are no longer willing to make sacrifices for the group. Trust declines. Social capital wanes. There are no heroes anymore. Renown gives way to fame and then to mere celebrity. That, and he quotes a historian, is the precipice which we are approaching in the West. This was written 11 years ago. When I was a child, I understood there were certain pillars of society. I was told there were five, and I've forgotten what one of them is. There was government, there was law, there was the church, and there was family, and another one, whatever that may be. I am 78 years old. These things were upheld and revered when I was a child and at school. Over those 78 years, and for a time I was a considerable part of it, I confess, in the 60s. We no longer trust government, but then they've given us no reason to often. We no longer trust law, though the law has given us reason not to trust it from time to time. We no longer trust the church because the church has reneged on its faith in so many ways and turned out at times to be as bad as the society around it. And we no longer uphold the family in the way that it was upheld before. We have changed it, mangled it, mixed it, and confused it. This is in my lifetime. What I've witnessed and some of you have witnessed with me. And here we have experts saying that our society is on the edge of some terrible breakdown. Now what I'm about to say now, some of you may want to argue with me. You have the right. I'm not claiming to be a prophet. I'm thinking. <laughs> I notice that in the book of Judges, 
when things went beyond the pale and the society did those things that were evil in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord sent troubles to them. If possible, to get them to call out to the Lord. And I'm just wondering whether we have a fierce barbarian bear on one side, destroying our wheat harvests and bringing us into anxiety and despair, while we have some cunning person on the east side sabotaging gas lines to bring us into all kinds of anxiety and expense. And whether perhaps we have a government, I'm to honour the government according to the word of God. So I want to honour the government. But the word of God comes to government just as much as it does to people sitting in pews. And if you exercise laws which favour the rich and don't care for the widow and the orphan, or the homeless, or the poor, then you've got a, a horribly skewed view of what our society should be like. If you have got all these pressures bringing anxiety and concern and breakdown into the mindset of a nation, couldn't God perhaps in his merciful anger be saying to a nation, call to me, cry out to me? Doesn't the scripture say, 2 Chronicles 7 verse 11 is it? It's not at verse 11. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and confess their sin and call out to me, I'm not quoting it exactly, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Jeremiah quoted, this is what God says, call to me and I will answer you and I will show you great and wonderful things which you've never understood. Call to me. In the New Testament, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. Now God has given us a saviour who is not just a saviour of individual lives but he is a king of kings and a lord of lords. And if we've forgotten the transcendence of God then we should ask him to revive it in us 
the sense of the transcendence and the awe and the power and the greatness of God. Call to God, we need a deliverer, Lord. Come to us again. Revive us, Lord. Restore us, Lord, in your mercy. And if anybody wants to tell me, but we're a multinational, we're a multinational society, a multi-ethnic society, Jesus, no, not Jesus, let me tell you. I have a book at home written by John about John Payton, a Scottish minister who went out to the South Seas and the cannibals of his day recognized Jesus and trusted him and were changed. I have a book at home about Sundar Singh who was a Sikh who wanted to know God and couldn't find him in the Sikhism and he cried out to God, his God, I'm going to kill myself and throw myself under the Midnight Express if you don't reveal yourself to me tonight. And just as he was getting up to leave his room, a young man, to go and fulfill his suicidal promise, his room was filled with light. And to his astonishment, it wasn't a Sikh God he saw at all. It was Jesus Christ whom he fell down and worshipped. And then he took the saffron robes of a holy man and went all over India preaching Jesus. And then in his sandals over the Himalayas into Nepal to preach Jesus. Jesus is not a Western God, a Western saviour. He is the saviour of the world. I had a friend at college, Robbie Maharaj, a Hindu, who came to London and was so confused by all the religions that he cried out daily to Krishna, the Lord Krishna, reveal yourself to me. Give me clarity. And one night somebody invited him to All Saints Langham Place and he heard about Jesus. And I met Robbie Maharaj at London Bible College, training to be a Christian minister. Jesus is the saviour for all generations, for all cultures, at all times. Our culture is falling apart. Our nation has forgotten its faith. The churches in some places are collaborating with, with this destruction by its own folly. Please, shouldn't we be calling out to the Lord and crying, Lord, have mercy on us. Reveal your son Jesus in us again. Renew your church, renew me. Make Jesus known again so that we can understand the ways of the Lord and not do evil in your sight. God bless you.